It's Tuesday, September 23rd, 2014 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pasco. I was on this TV show all in last night. Joining me now, Mike Pasco, host of Slate's magazine, Slate Magazine's daily podcast, The Gist. Uh, there was a sartorial element. I talked about what I was wearing. Well, I got to say, when I came on your show, Chris, and I was wearing a blazer, an unbuttoned shirt, and jeans, I thought I was maybe underdressed for the occasion. It's exactly what Pachati wore for his press conference. <laughs> it was maybe about what I didn't mention when I was on the show was that I was wearing a pretty nice pair of shoes. And that comes into play. Because I get out of it, so, you know, this is at MSNBC, 30 Rock, the fa- famously, you know, Tina Fey. Very cool building, old building. The carpet actually has the Peacock logo. That's great to see. I get on the elevator, and, like, I have to step over this little kind of Tetris thing, a tiny, bitty, itty-bitty Great Wall of China that someone's filming. So I step over it. I'm like, what's going on, guys? And they're like, um... Yeah, shooting some interstitials for Saturday Night Live. I'm like, oh, what is that? Because I only saw it from the back, but from the front, it's the Saturday Night Live logo. And they're at ground level. And I guess they're filming the elevator going up and down in 30 Rock, which I can imagine would look cool. And the guy's like, oh, those are cool shoes, which I don't think has ever been said to me. I'm like, hey, you want me to step into the frame and over the thing? He's like, absolutely. So I tried it, and he's like, oh, that's good. I'm like, I got an idea, guys. I'm going to come toward the logo. Let's see. And I kind of saw on the monitor how it looked. It looked good. It looked really really good. They were really excited. So I think my shoes, the brown ones, light brown with the red laces, might be on an SNL bumper from the brakes. And even if it's not, I figured out this is absolutely the best way to raise ratings because, you know, everything in television, well, it's DVR'd. People just skip through the commercial. If you just put individuals, especially individuals with Nielsen boxes, if you put them in the interstitials, so and you don't even know when in the season these are going to air, everyone will watch Saturday Night Live just to see their shoes in the interstitial. Coming up on the show, we'll be talking about analogies. In the spiel, I'll be talking about tax rates. Are they low? Are they high? Wrong question. But first, how many people do the police kill each year? Isn't it amazing that we don't know the answer to that? In the wake of the killing of an unarmed teen in Ferguson, Missouri, there were questions. Some were uncomfortable, some were clearly going to take a while to answer, some defied answers. But there was one that I thought wasn't ethereal or unknowable or especially complex. How often does this happen? How often do police in the United States kill citizens? No one knows. The FBI stats are incomplete. Individual police departments don't want to report. It's opaque. So D. Brian Burghardt, editor of the Reno News and Review, decided to start a database. He covers crime. He wondered about the answer to that question I just asked. He tried to get it officially through freedom of information requests, but local police departments found ways to thwart that effort. So he thought, I'll build a database myself. I'll ask people, anyone with access to Google, to research police killings as reported in the media. And now there is a database. It's at fatalencounters.org. And D. Brian Burkhart joins me. Thanks for your time. Hi. So what was the impetus for this project? The impetus was there were two incidents. One, I was driving home from work, and I saw this scene of just of chaos. I mean, cop cars parked haphazardly, people standing around looking very kind of stern, you know, the entrance to the neighborhood blocked off. And I just knew instinctively that police had killed somebody there. So I, I, I just got curious. How often does this happen? 
You know, I wasn't even looking for the United States. I was just wondering how often in, in Washoe County or even in Nevada it happened. So I looked, and I didn't find anything, and I just kind of chalked it up to lame local media. And then there was another incident. A few months later, this kid named Gil Collar in, at the University of Southern Alabama, he was an 18-year-old kid, showed up at the police office naked. He was on drugs. In my imagination, I imagined he was there looking for help or a prank or something. I mean, you know. And the officer came out, and without attempting any less lethal methods or bringing him back up or, you know, knocking the guy down, killed him. Yeah. I started looking a little more in earnest. I started finding stories that referred to the lack of, of a database. I mean, going back to the 90s in the New York Times. But then I saw this one that was done in Las Vegas. I guess it's three years ago now. It was called Deadly Force, where they said succinctly in a paragraph, it's, it's like the lead paragraph on, on my website, that there is no national database. And that, at that moment, I basically, I mean, I recognized that it could be made by an individual, and apparently the, the FBI was going to do it, so I, I decided to do it. And so just to summarize, you went through official sure. channels, you tried to get really great sources if they had complied, and they did whatever they could to block you. So as an end-around, you said, well, most of these cases will have been written about somewhere in some newspaper, right? Exactly. And let's get a chronicle of all the cases that we can. I'm not going to be able to find it. Let's enlist uh, everyone. Right. How's that going? Very well, actually. I'm up to about 2,000 incidents that have made it into the database. So I've got about 9,000 incidents that require more research, and that's where the crowdsourcing comes in. People go to that spreadsheet, and they pull up what information is available, and then they submit it with uh, additional research to me. Then it goes into this fact-checking queue, and then it makes it into the database. Now, when you are trying to compile this list of police-involved shootings, it's not just a discharge, though. It's, it's uh, someone was hit by a bullet. Is that right? Yeah. I knew what would be available in the media as a journalist for 20 years. Mm -hmm. I knew that as soon as I asked for things like cops' names or number of bullets, they would just say, well, that's a personnel matter, and refuse the whole request, right? Right. So I went straight for people killed by law enforcement. You probably remember maybe 10 years ago, it was a huge national issue about high-speed chases mm -hmm. resulting in accidents and deaths. Mm -hmm. I wanted to include anything that had potential policy change ramifications, that sort of thing. But also, when you talk about the worst incidents of police violence that we know about, it's almost always beatings as opposed to, you know, somebody gets beat to death like Kelly Thomas in Fullerton rather than shot. I mean, these, these shootings are, are also heinous, but when you visually, it's the beatings tend to, to be the ones that get a lot of notice. Okay, so are you chronicling the beatings or just the shootings? No, the shootings, beatings, car accidents, yeah. intentional running over of people, tasings, anything. Anything that results in a death, in a homicide. Okay, what have you found out about race? Race very often is not reported at all. But for states where we have good data, for example, Nevada, I made public records requests of all the state and local law enforcement agencies in Nevada, because I'm in Reno. And it was about 100 out of 212 incidents. It was about 100 were white, which 
the rest, I think 17, we, we couldn't determine whether what the race was. So the rest were people of color, which would make it an incredibly large percentage of, of people of color out of the total percentage of people killed. Basically half. Yeah. What have you found out about how many of these shootings have been ruled unjustified? There aren't any. None. Shootings are almost always ruled justified. Mm-hmm. I mean, in the 98 percentile, maybe even on, or 99 percentile, the types of killings that end up with criminal ramifications in Nevada, at least, are like an officer who's going 100 miles an hour to lunch and he kills three or four. It's usually those types of incidents where the officer is acting in ways that are against policy. Yeah. Basically, if the officer has expressed fear for his own life or those around him, it's justified. What have you found about mental illness, the prevalence of mental illness in these cases? It's, I feel like that's the huge untold story. That's maybe 30% of people killed in the United States are mentally ill. And then when you think about it, it makes sense, because if, if the person was in their right mind, they wouldn't be waving you know, a gun around, even if they're not threatening the officer, even if they're just you know, their family members around. It appears to me that in better-funded law enforcement agencies, mm-hmm. that those types of killing are less likely to happen than in smaller, less-funded agencies where they might not have that sort of training. What about the policemen? Can you conclude that it's a dangerous world out there for policemen? Oh, you wouldn't believe what I've seen. I mean, people will just shoot without any kind of warning or reason, or it's dangerous, and it's completely random. Do you think the blame in the fact that you have to do this and that no one officially is doing this, does it lay with the FBI, or does it lay with individual police agencies who don't want to give the FBI their statistics, or is the FBI not asking hard enough or skillfully enough? I think it lays with the FBI. If they ask these specific questions in the Uniform Crime Report, then 16,000 out of 17,985 state and local law enforcement agencies would voluntarily contribute, but they don't ask. D. Brian Berghardt is the editor of the Reno News and Review, and we've been talking to him about his crowdsourced database program, which you could find at fatalencounters.org, and I presume help contribute to? Oh, absolutely. All right. Thank you, Brian. No problem. An effective speaker can turn a phrase like Ozzie Smith could turn a double play, or like 18th century ballet dancer Fraulein Heinen could turn a pirouette, or like an army could turn a boy into a man, or like Cleopatra could turn man Mark Antony into mush. And there you have the tool of the great speaker, the analogy. It's a tool as versatile as the monkey wrench and as reliable as a ball-peen hammer. And here, to unlock its secrets, like a waitress in a deli will unlocks a vegetarian's bagel, is expert analogizer John Pollock. The book is called Shortcuts. John Pollock's also the author of The Pun Also Rises and Cork Boat. He wrote and made a boat made of cork, which actually got you the job in the Clinton White House, right? Almost eliminated you, but got you the job. Well, it helped. It helped. And there was an analogy behind that. There was, actually. I was uh, being interviewed for the job, uh, talking with the chief speechwriter, and he was looking at my resume, and he said, I have no, no doubt that you can write. I've looked at your writing samples, but 
but what's this cork boat? And I had added it on my resume the night before because I, I actually was currently unemployed. I needed to account for what I was doing. And I, I said I was currently building the world's first cork boat. And he asked me to, to tell him about it. And I said I'd been saving corks, wine corks from the age of six, and I was going to build a big ship and take it on an epic voyage. And I could tell that he was a little bit dubious. Who was this whack job? Maybe I shouldn't uh, come to the White House. And I said, and suddenly this analogy popped into mind. And I said, well, building a cork boat is a lot like writing a good speech. And he kind of looked at me and I knew I was in deep. And I said, well, uh, you take a lot of words or a lot of corks. If they're in a jumble, they do nothing for you. If you put them in just the right order, they'll take you on an amazing journey. And he started to grin. At least I had the gift of the silver shovel. And he said, okay, I get the analogy, and I got the job. And if he had a big mustache and a cigar, he'd say, son, you're hired, just like that. Now, I'm thinking, a cork boat's like the economy itself. It's hard to point in the exact right direction, but generally it's above water. You might need a bucket to bail it out once in a while. And it goes generally in the right direction over time. All right, there's your cork boat analogy. Now, I love analogies. People sometimes ask me when I was a reporter for NPR, I don't like sports, but I like you. Can you account for this? Like, I'd give a complicated answer, but you know what it kind of boiled down to? I made good analogies. Like, I know that most of the audience didn't like sports, so I could analogize it to something else, and then they'd get it. Or the audience that did like sports, like, if you read 20 game pieces about how the Giants did, no one would come up with my particular analogy. So it was a little fresh and exciting for everyone. That's it. That's my theory. You've really hit on something here because people understand through analogy. When you go to school, you learn through analogy. When you are listening to someone's point of view, you can listen, 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 and then suddenly they spring an analogy on you and you say, oh yeah, I yeah. get it. But they could be clarifying, but they, they could also be horribly misleading. What people don't realize is that the analogies we choose can sometimes have huge consequences. Yep. Uh, take, for example, uh, the, the domino theory uh, that led us into Vietnam. Uh, Dwight Eisenhower offered that off the cuff in a press conference when a reporter in 1954 uh, said, you know, what's the significance of French Indochina? Why should we care? And he said, well, it's it's like a row of dominoes. You set them up, you tip one over, the next one goes, the next one goes, and sure enough, the last one's going to tip over. I mean, if we lose Vietnam, there goes Cambodia, Laos, Thailand, Malaysia, and they're knocking at our door. That analogy took something that was very abstract and far away and put it into terms that the public could understand and over successive presidencies, we got deeply involved in Vietnam at the cost of thousands of lives and, and, and billions of dollars. And the analogy was wrong, and we know that because we lost, right. helicoptered off the roof in Saigon, and the other countries didn't topple because they're not dominoes. They have their own history, leaders, politics, geography, etc. Right. There are others that sometimes people don't even realize how much of an analogy they are. And I think one of the most destructive things in thinking about policy is how we think about the national economy and we analogize it to our family economy. And it becomes very attractive to say, hey, I have to balance my budget. Of course, the national economy needs to be balanced. But they're really two different things. And I don't even think that people realize that that's an analogy as opposed to an equation. You're, you're absolutely right. And, and, and there are some very obvious differences. The United States of America has been in debt every year, except for one since its founding. During the Jackson administration, yes, I think. Uh, that, yes, absolutely. <laughs> and the needs of a country are perpetual and grand. You, one constantly needs to be investing 
in the future, and 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 we do that uh, through through debt. And so that's very different, whether you're building an interstate highway system, whether you are making the Louisiana Purchase, putting a man on the moon, uh, the sentiment, and this is what analogies do very effectively, is they swap in uh, an easier question that people can understand for a harder question. Yes. And, and, and getting two people or one person in the household to balance, to agree on priorities and balance their budget is a very different challenge than getting 500 and 35 people to, uh, with representing different interests, to agree uh, on what those priorities should be. So uh, the analogy only goes so far, and it, and it actually is, is quite limiting. One of the analogies you talk about is um, we always use sailing analogies, mm-hmm. sailing the ship of state. But early on in the book, you talk about this Viagra ad, yeah. which is a great analogy. Um, describe, great, and it's, it was, describe what's in the ad. Uh, okay, so uh, in that ad, uh, it starts out, and there's this confident, middle-aged, good-looking man uh, sailing a, a, a boat, and and the camera zooms in, and you see this critical piece of hardware fail on the boom, and and uh, the, the main sheet slips out, and, and the, the sail starts to flap loosely. As the narrator calmly talks on, uh, the, you see the, the captain of the ship pull the belt from the life jacket and make a fix, and suddenly the sail is firm again, and he sails onward. And it's the perfect analogy because you, he never, they never mention the problem explicitly. They just get at it obliquely. It boils down to something very elemental in sex. Is hard better than soft? Do you want to be in command or do you want to be a victim of mm-hmm. the winds? And so, when you take your belt off, is it for a purpose? Yeah, well, yeah. He takes his belt yes. off with confidence. Yes. Uh, he's he's in control. Uh, there's there's nothing that uh, that he can't uh, control. Yes. And as a sailor, would, did this make sense to you? Was this uh, fix logical? It was. I, I haven't experienced the the other problems uh, to which he was alluding. Yes. Uh, but the sailing analogy, it was. I suppose it it did its job. I think the analogy of the year this year is. Is the Mideast crisis the Iraq War redux? Is it the Vietnam War redux? Or is it a pre-Neville Chamberlain, pre-World War II situation? Or pre-9-11? What's your analogy that will dictate all your philosophy, strategy, and tactics in dealing with ISIS? President Obama uh, initially made the comparison to a JV team, and, and, yeah. and that got him in trouble. Uh, in In the speech to the nation two weeks ago, he talked about ISIS is a cancer. And that was a much better analogy because how do you tackle cancer? Uh, you have to be steady. You have to be aggressive. You're going to have two steps forward, one step back. That's something that people can understand. Now, the next day, General Hayden, former CIA director, said, well, a bombing campaign is, has all the appeal of instant uh, of casual sex, instant gratification, but no commitment. And that was a terrible analogy uh, <laughs> because... Ideally, in casual sex, you know, you've got two consenting adults, and and I can guarantee you, however much somebody on the ground in northern Iraq might deserve the attack, yeah. they're not consenting to be being yeah. bombed. And if you're trying to build a, a coalition to fight this cancer, probably didn't help the cause by 
you know, hoping to enlist, you know, a, a lot of Muslim countries in, in, in this casual sex. Right. It's such a mixed analogy. The only way to fight this cancer is through casual sex. And I also have to tell you, the last time I was trying to seduce a woman, my talk of surgical strikes and my guarantee of no ground troops did not help matters at all. Did not go anywhere. I was, you were think you were talking about. That would be uh, booty on the ground. Huh? Guy, guy won a punning competition. John Pollock, who wrote The Pun Also Rises, is now the author of Shortcut, How Analogies Reveal Connections, Spark Innovations, and Sell Our Greatest Ideas. Thank you, John. Thank you. And now the spiel. I'll now share with you a foolish, bordering on crazy argument you have about a thermostat. Why a thermostat? It's an analogy. So let's say there's a man and a woman, and one wants it colder and one wants it warmer. And let's defy gender stereotypes and make the man the guy who wants it warmer and the woman the person who wants it colder. So before I get to the foolish conversation, the sane conversation would go like this. It's cold. Can you raise the thermostat? Uh, okay, a couple of degrees. Hey, that's too warm. Can you lower the thermostat? Perfect. See how that worked? Now here's the dopey conversation. I believe in lowering the temperature. My husband wants it raised. He wants to raise the thermostat, but I want it low. It needs to be lower. But I just lowered it. It doesn't matter. I believe in lowered thermostats. But it's practically freezing. Yes, but a high thermostat has proved to be uncomfortable. We remember the days of high thermostats in the past. It was very, very hot. Yeah, but maybe we could just agree on a good number for it to be, like 70 degrees. No, it must be lower. So lower than 70 degrees? No, lower, just lower. Always, always lower. But doesn't it matter where it starts off? Lower! End scene. So that was about the temperature. Now? Now let's talk about taxes. Yes, Sam Brownback, governor of Kansas, let's talk about taxes. The conversation isn't about what's a good tax rate or the not-too-high, not-too-low tax rate. The conversation is always between lowering taxes and lowering taxes more. Lower to what? Well, lower than they are now. Sam Brownback says of his opponent, Paul Davis. He's never seen a tax increase he didn't like. Okay, so that's hyperbole. That's the equivalent of he wants it to be a meat locker in here. But the tax issue in Kansas is interesting, and it's an interesting microcosm of America. Because even Paul Davis, so he's the one who would like the room toastier than Brownback, even the guy who's shivering, wearing two sweaters, has to establish his cold room bona fides. During my 12 years in the legislature, I have voted over 150 times to cut taxes. I voted to get rid of the estate tax, the corporate franchise tax, the property tax on business machinery and equipment. I voted to cut the corporate income tax because we needed to stay competitive with Missouri. And I have always, always been an opponent of a sales tax on services, and I always will be. I like the cold. I really like the cold. I'm not Mr. Heat Miser. I'm not Mr. Sun. I'm not Mr. Green Winter. I am Mr. Leads in the poll by 3% and plus or minus 1. So Sam Brownback charges. He thinks the government spends your money better than you do. I think you spend your money better than the government spends it. And that's like saying he thinks air conditioners are better than an open window. He thinks a heater is better than the warmth of the sun. Now, you may have noticed that the crowd was raucous at that debate. It was outdoors at a state fair. So maybe that's why the candidates were speaking generally, weren't actually talking about numbers. We're doing the equivalent of raise the thermostat, lower the thermostat, and not talking about what the temperature is. They were saying things like this. Listen carefully. He's talking about raising your taxes. 
and the Jayhawk crowd went wild. So now let's turn to experts. Not anyone who's running for office. Two men on opposite sides of this divide who will answer the essential question, which isn't high or low, which isn't up or down. The essential question with taxes, as with thermostats, is from what to what? I want to lower taxes. Okay. From what rate to what rate? This now from Sunday's Meet the Press, Thomas Frank, author of What's the Matter with Kansas. The Brownback administration talked the state legislature into cutting taxes in a, a pretty spectacular way, in a way that states don't often do, as, as, you, as you mentioned before. And it was, you know, the, the promise was that this would lead to a kind of immediate uh, economic boom in the state, and that hasn't materialized. Cut taxes in a spectacular way. That does not answer from what to what. Maybe Frank's debating opponent, low-tax fundamentalist Grover Norquist, can tell us from what to what. We've now taken it down uh, to where you pay 4.8% above 30000 Aha! That's the to-what part, but there was no mention of the from what. So I will give you the answer. Under Brown back in Kansas, the bottom bracket was 2.7%. And once it hit about $30,000 for a married couple, it went up to 4.8%. So what was it before Brown back? It was once 6.2% or 6.4% for people making above $60,000. So what we're talking about here is under Brown back, Kansans are keeping, let's say, about 1.5% more of their income. It's not nothing. It's the difference between balancing the Kansas budget and maybe not balancing the Kansas budget in the average Kansan's pocket, a couple of hundred bucks. But please, always in this debate, tell me from what to what. Because this entire argument of, you know, John F. Kennedy lowered taxes, yes, but they were at 91%. They were ridiculously high. And Obama raised taxes? Yeah, by about 4%. We're not talking Greek-style austerity. And more importantly for Kansas, state income tax rates have been falling over time for years. Brownback wasn't letting free the animal spirits at 4.8% that were all bottled in at 6.2%. I mean, if taxes were, you know, in double digits, state tax was 10% and he cut them in half, I would acknowledge that's a big change. But 1.5%? It's not nothing, but it's not as transformative as this heated national discussion would have you believe. And when Grover Norquist and his ilk keep pounding the lower taxes argument, lower, 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 point out that absolute zero might be as destructive a destination for tax rates as it is for thermostats. And that's it for the show. Andrea Salenzi produces the gist like Fitzgerald said people lose money gradually, then all at once. Andy Bowers goes about his duties of executive producer of Slate podcasts like God in the Presbyterian religion, meaning he sets affairs in motion, then gently nudges them along the way. You can listen in SoundCloud or go to iTunes. We're on Yo. You get the Yo app, subscribe to podcast, and then when the gist is up, we'll let you know via Yo. In order to sign up for an email that comes to your inbox that lets you know when the show's ready, that you can play the show right from that email, go to slate.com slash gist email. Our Twitter feed is Slate Gist. Email us at thegist at slate.com. We're on Facebook, too. I think of the following phrase like a road trip to the Magic Kingdom or Ralph hugging Alice at the end of The Honeymooners or like a wedding at the end of any Shakespearean comedy. It might have been kooky along the way, but you know where you're going to end up when I say, hey, thanks for listening.